Some of you may be familiar with the music philosopher named Tim Hawkins. Uh, he is also known as a comedian. And uh, one of the things he does is, is song parodies. And in, in one song, he, he lays out uh, a, a goal for people. He says, if you're a man who wants to live a long and happy life, then these are the things you don't say to your wife. And he gives a list of a variety of things, things like, where'd you get those shoes? I think they're really lame. Would you stop talking because I'm trying to watch the game? Or I planned a hunting trip next week on your birthday. I didn't ask you, but I knew it'd be okay. Or can you go make some dinner while I watch this fishing show? I, I taped it over our old wedding video. And, and really the, the point of the song is to, to say, there are consequences for your actions. If you do these kinds of things, you won't experience long and happy life. But if you avoid these things, then you can enjoy it. In some ways, the, the passage that we're going to look at this evening, Solomon says, do you want to live a peaceful and prosperous life? If you want that kind of life, then here are the things you must do. Here's what you must not do. Here's what you must do. If you would open your Bibles up to Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of Proverbs 3. In this section of, of Proverbs, Solomon really gives a list of commands and then a consequence that would flow out of following that command. And basically every other verse is that. The odd number verses, 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11, are all commands or, or admonitions or precepts. The even-numbered verses are, are basically all results or consequences or promises flowing out of these things. Uh, occasionally you'll have a, a little bit of a, a, a command flow into the second verse, but they all follow this kind of pattern. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through these six commands and consequences to see how Solomon says, uh, if you want to live a, a peaceful and prosperous life, you have to be wholly committed to God and his word. And so let's look at the first command in verse one of chapter three. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And he's saying, don't forget my teaching. It's the idea of, of don't walk away from them. Don't neglect them. But instead, keep them, obey them, follow them. So he talks about his teaching here. It's really a similar idea of, of we've seen throughout already in the book of Proverbs. It is a word that's often referred to law. And, and here Solomon, I think, is, is again pointing to the fact that his teaching is based upon God's teaching. Probably as well, his teaching would include the book of Proverbs that he's writing to his son. Now Solomon would be inspired as he's writing this teaching. And so what he's telling his son in the book of Proverbs is exactly what God wants him to do. But I think we might be able to, to make an application to us as well as we are, have an opportunity to instruct our, parent, our children or our grandchildren, that, that we are providing ways in which you're asking them to carry out God's laws. Now, it doesn't have the same weight that Solomon's application does. But in many ways, he's saying, if you want to do what God has said in his law, then this is what you need to do. This is what you must follow. And that really should be at the heart of our instructions to our children as well. So this is what God wants you to do. And so don't forget it. 
Don't neglect it. Keep it. Obey it. Live out what God has called you to do. And if you follow that command, what is the consequence? Well, that's found in verse 2. Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Length of days and years of life. Really, it's a, a long life. It's similar to what we find in the Ten Commandments. That, that if you do what your parents say, if you follow what God has said in his word, you're less likely to get into it problems. You're more likely to have a, a good life, a long life. And it's not just a long life, because a long, miserable life wouldn't be that good. And so it's a long and peaceful life. And, and peace uh, in the Old Testament is very often not just the idea of there's no conflict, but wholeness and, and wellness. It's the kind of life that God intends for his people to live and to enjoy that kind of a life. And so Solomon here begins by offering this peaceful and prosperous life. And I think really most of the, the consequences are, are tied in with that as we work through this passage. He's saying you can have a good life if you do what I'm calling you to do here. So we find then the second set of commands and consequences in verses 3 and 4. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, I think the, the way that Solomon phrases this, in some way he's tying kindness and truth to the idea of his teaching and his commandments. And so when he's talking about kindness and truth, I think in a sense he's saying these are central ways in which you will ex exemplify the fact that you are keeping my commandments, that you aren't neglecting the law that I'm giving you, the teaching that I'm giving you, that your life will be characterized by kindness and truth. The word for kindness here is a word that's used often in the Old Testament to talk about God's covenant faithfulness. You'll see it often translated in the NASB as loving kindness. The King James translated it as mercy. Sometimes people refer to it as loyal love. It's a word that's a little bit hard to get an exact match in English. I think kindness is certainly a big part of this. There's a sense, there's a commitment to a relationship that causes you to, to deal with compassion and mercy and kindness and love to that person. And then truth is the idea of, of being reliable and stable. And these are things that should characterize us if we are following what God says. And he says, don't let them leave you. Instead, bind them around your neck. It's similar in some ways to the, the picture he gave in chapter 1. If you remember, uh, he said, if you keep my commandments, but make them a garland. Make them, make them a piece of jewelry that you would keep around your neck. And the second part, write them on the tablet of your heart. Get them into the very inner core of who you are. And I think both of these are really pointing to the idea that this should be characterizing you in everything that you do. That the very fabric of your being is tied in with kindness and truth. Perhaps a modern way to say it is we bleed kindness and truth. It's just so integral to who we are that if you cut us, what comes out is kindness and truth. And we live in a day in which I think there are two 
two problems we face in relation to this. One is we tend to think kindness and truth are, are at odds with each other. You can either be truthful or you can be kind. And yet scripture constantly ties these things together. Truth and love. Truth and kindness. And to speak the truth is not to be unkind. Certainly you could be unkind in how you speak the truth. But standing on the truth, holding fast to the truth, is not an unkind, unloving thing. But the flip side of that is increasingly we have voices in our culture that seem to be saying kindness is a fool's game. That if you show kindness to others, you're basically just setting them up to use you. And so don't worry about kindness. Just worry about truth and justice. But as a Christian, we can't ignore kindness because it's at the heart of God's character. It should be at the heart of our character. Now, we're not being kind just for the, the sake of, of allowing people to overrun us. And yet in everything that we do, we are seeking to demonstrate God's character of kindness and compassion as we deal with others. And what's the result here? What's the consequence? So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Favor, people will be well disposed to you. They will look upon you, not with a scowl, but with a smile. As they think about you and who you are. And you'll have good repute, esteem. And I think that the idea probably behind that word is uh, you'll have a good reputation because you are generally successful in life. Because you are wisely living out in the, in the world and the way that God has called you to live. And this is something that you will experience both with God and man. Now certainly if, if the option is, do I want God's approval or man's approval? The answer is, well, if they're in conflict, I want God's approval. But, but it doesn't always have to be in conflict. That when we are actually doing what God wants us to do, often that will cause us to, to grow in favor with man as well. We see Jesus experiencing that as he grew up in Luke 2. He grew in favor with God and with men. Maybe one just simple example of this. In our day, it's very hard right now to find people who are hard workers. Many industries are very concerned and there's major turnover and you, you hire someone and they don't show up or they show up and they don't do the job they're supposed to do. And if you are a Christian who's following God's laws and you're living in a way that's committed to truth, and committed to kindness, having a right relationship with those that, that, that God has put into your path, then you are going to be someone who lives a life of integrity. You're going to be someone who shows up and, and fulfills his or her responsibility. And in so doing, what's going to happen from your employer? You're going to have favor. You're going to gain respect. You're going to get a good reputation. Because you're someone who's known for faithfulness and integrity. And so if you want a, a prosperous and peaceful life, one in which God looks upon you in favor and man looks upon you with favor, then make kindness and truth integral to the very substance of who you are. The third command and consequence is found in verses 5 and 6. And this might be one of the most well-known passages in the book of Proverbs. What's the command? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And this one, I think the command bleeds into the, the next part of this verse. In all your ways, acknowledge him. 
And so what is the command? Well, let's, let's try to, to think through and make sure we understand exactly what's going on. Because often when we find verses that are well known, sometimes we actually know them not in the way that God actually wanted us to know them because we, we have a false idea that kind of centers around us. So what does it mean to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not to lean on your own understanding? That this isn't saying, never use your understanding, just blindly close your eyes and say, God, tell me what to do. And sometimes I think people got that idea in part because of the, the translation of the consequence. He will make your path straight. In the King James, it was, uh, he will direct your paths. So sometimes people come to this verse and say, you don't know what to do? Well, don't try to think it out on your own. Just kind of pray and trust God and he'll show you what you need to do. But I don't think that's really what this verse is saying. In large part, because I don't think that's really what trust is about. But I also don't think that's what the final consequence means. So what, is, what does it mean to trust in the Lord? Well, what's the opposite of it? The opposite of it is found in the second part of the verse. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't rely, don't put your weight on your own understanding. Instead, trust the Lord. And so in a sense, it's saying this. If, as I'm trying to think through how I live in this world, and again, I think that's the context, right? Because he's been talking about the commands and the instructions and having kindness and truth Mark you. So as I think through, how does God want me to live in this world? What should I do in my life? I say, what God says is what I will do because that is what is better. And I won't look at myself and say, what do I think I should do here? How do I think I should live my life? And I would not then rely on my own understanding. Instead, I would put my confidence in the Lord. And there is this idea of trust Because I am saying, God, you made this world. You're telling me this is what I should do. And so I'm trusting that you are right and you are good. And in some ways, I'm trusting that you will do the things that you say you would do in this passage. That the results of my choices to follow and obey you will result in the blessings that you you say you would give to those who follow you. So what does it mean then to acknowledge him? Well, really the idea is to know him. And probably the idea of acknowledges isn't too far off. It's the point of, of, of knowing in Scripture is a relationship. And so it's not just kind of give a head nod. Oh, yeah, I know he's there. But live every aspect of my life in light of the relationship I have with him. I heard it illustrated this way. If you were a a business person getting ready to go to a a convention and someone says, hey, while you're there, make sure you love your wife. You say, well, she's not coming with me. He says, all the more reason to make sure as you go, you love your wife. Because the point there is you live every aspect as a married person. You have a relationship with her and that governs all of your life. In all your ways, you are the Lord's. You have a relationship with him. And so you recognize that relationship with him in all that you do. And there is that emphasis on it's exhaustive. It's entire. Uh, You trust in the Lord with all 
your heart. And in all your ways, you acknowledge him. That there is no aspect of your life that you can say, well, in, in this aspect, I don't really, I'm not really concerned about God or his word. That, that we don't compartmentalize our life in that way as believers. All of us belongs to God. Every aspect of our life is his. And so therefore, with all of our being, we commit ourselves to him and we trust in him. And perhaps think about it this way, when it's telling you to trust the Lord, it would be like if you're going to the, the mechanics and they look at your car and they say, you know, we've looked at your car and, and we think this is the problem and we're suggesting that this is the thing that you need to change. And you, maybe like me, would say, you know what, I really don't know much about cars. And so I thought maybe it was this issue, but I'm going to trust your judgment here because you probably know better than I do what's going on and what needs to happen. And so I'm going to say you have a better understanding of these things and therefore you have a better way forward. And that's what we're doing. We're saying, Lord, you know better and you have a better way forward. But it becomes really hard when we think, no, I think I know better. Let's say you have a really good understanding of how a car works and the mechanic says, I think this is the problem. And you say, no, I'm convinced that's not it. I know better than you. Could that be the case with your mechanic? Certainly. Is that ever the case with God? No. And yet we still have that temptation. We, we still have that struggle in which we say, Lord, that just doesn't make sense to me. Lord, that does not seem right. And what Solomon here tells us to say, you just got to trust the Lord though. And in a sense, that's when it's hardest to trust the Lord, but that's also really when trust comes into play. Because otherwise often it's just, well, I agree, God. And so I'll do what you said because I kind of like that path too. But the challenge is when we say, I'm not sure I like that option. I'm not sure I like that path. So let's say you're in the middle of a difficult situation and someone comes to you and they bring God's word to you and they say, look, this is what God's word says and so this is how you need to respond. What you need to do is to say, you know what? I'm not sure I like that. That may not make sense to me, but it doesn't have to make sense to me. Because I'm going to trust the Lord. Because my understanding is not sufficient enough for me to put my weight on it. I can't lean on it. I can't rely on it. It will fail me. I have to trust the Lord. I have to recognize I am His. He is my God. In every aspect of my life, I live in that reality. And what's the consequence? He will make your paths straight. But again, it's not saying he will give you some type of special guidance. It's not as though if I can maybe help you think about what this verse is not saying. If you're familiar with the movie The Princess Bride, and uh, my, name, my name's, I think, Inigo Montoya, right? He, he, he's out in the woods, and he's like, I don't know where to go. And so he says, Father, guide me. And he closes his eyes. He kind of starts wandering around with the sword. 
That's not what this verse is saying. It's not saying, trust the Lord. Okay, God, where do you want me to go? Because what does it mean to trust the Lord? What did he tell you to do? Trust that what he told you to do is right. Not trust that somehow he's going to give you new information. But trust that the information he gave you is good. It is right for you. And when you then trust that and live in light of that, what happens? He will make your path straight. And there's some debate about exactly what that phrase means. Because the word straight can have two different ideas. One idea is straight or upright, just. And certainly there's that emphasis in Proverbs, that our paths are meant to be straight paths and that they are right, righteous paths. But it can also have the idea of smooth. And I actually wonder if there isn't an intentional pun, if I can say it this way here, that, that, that there is a sense in which both are true. Because as you live a straight path, it is a smooth path. That the way of the sinner is hard. But if you follow what God has said, it will go well with you. Your path will be smooth. Now I think it is an important reminder that I saw one commentator say that we shouldn't necessarily think, oh, so that's going to be like smooth, like a baby's skin kind of smooth. It might be smooth like a board that hasn't fully been sanded. It is smooth, but it's, there are still bumps. There are still crevices. There might still be a few turns along the path. But if you're looking at it from God's, eye, God's viewpoint, and you're looking at the whole path, you will see that this is a straight path. This is a smooth path. Yes, there will be issues, and we'll even see that later in this passage. But it's a better path. It's a better path if you trust God than if you trust in yourself. The fourth command is found in verse 7. And I think in some ways is related to the, the previous command. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What does it mean to be wise in your own eyes? Well, to think, I know what's right. And, and potentially to, to kind of be thinking about me first. I've got to figure out what I think will be best for me. And the opposite of that is fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. Because often when we are thinking, what is in it for me? How can I determine what's best for me? we end up thinking, how can I use others rather than how can I show them kindness and truth? And that's evil. We're supposed to turn from evil and instead fear the Lord, to, to obey him because we love him and because we respect him. And so we're going to do what he says rather than what we want. And what is the consequence, verse 8, it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Total healing. I think the idea of body and bones is basically all of you. And certainly there, there is a sense of, of spiritual well-being here, but I think there is a sense of physical well-being. And we understand that, that sin can actually have effects on our physical bodies. That the choices we make can, can cause things to be happening in us 
anxiety, depression, often these can be the result of sinful choices we're making, of sinful thinking that we're allowing into our lives. And if instead we're turning from evil and we're fearing the Lord, we can find health. Does that mean if you're sick, you're not following the Lord? No. Remember, Proverbs are not absolute promises. But again, generally, if you do what God says, it's better for you. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, we can find restoration and healing. Fifth command is found in verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Honor the Lord has the idea of, of placing value on him. Recognizing his significance. And the way in here that you recognize his significance is how you use your wealth that you give of the first of your wealth. And that the idea is, is kind of the first fruits. And, and there were two aspects of the idea of giving of your first fruits in the Old Testament. One is uh, it's the best. That, that you don't say, well, what's left over? You say, what would be the most honoring thing to give to my Lord? How can I show him how much I value him by giving him of the best of what I have. The part of the idea of first fruits as well was when you first get something from your harvest. And when you take that and give it to the Lord, one of the things you're doing as well in honoring him is saying, Lord, I trust that you will continue to provide the rest. And so I'm not going to hoard it and say, well, let's see if everything turns out okay, and then I'll give it to the Lord. But it was an act of faith that God will take care of me. God will provide me. And I'm honoring him. Because I'm recognizing it's not mine anyway. The Lord gave this to me. And so I'm giving him back of the first fruits, of the best of what I have. And what's the consequence? The consequence in verse 10, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That you'll have Enough and more. That you don't need to say, I can't give to this Lord because if I give it, I won't have what I need. And God says, if you give it, you'll have what you need and more. Now again, is this a guaranteed promise that you will never face any kind of need? And the answer from Scripture is, is no. But even when you're facing need, you know God will provide what you ultimately need. And so you give, trusting the Lord, honoring Him, and generally when you do that, you will be blessed. Because as many people have pointed out, it is impossible to outgive God. You're not giving to Him because He needs it from you. You're giving it to honor Him. And we show what we think of God by how we use our resources. And I think it probably is legitimate to, to broaden that out beyond just our material resources, but our time and our energy. Are we giving the best of ourselves to him? Because we recognize that he is worthy of these things. And I think it is helpful to, to note, I saw one commentator point this out, 
is again, it's not necessarily a promise that, hey, if you give, you're going to get more back all the time. Because if that were a guaranteed promise, what's the danger we'd face? Well, I'm just giving so I get more. And that's not the goal. The goal isn't give so you can get more. The goal is honor the Lord, and as you honor him, he will take care of you, and he will bless you. But you don't give so that you can get. You give to honor him. And verses 11 and 12 come right after this, potentially as another reminder, that as a child of God, you will not always be enjoying a life of peace and prosperity, because sometimes you will be facing the discipline and reproof of the Lord. And I think that discipline and reproof is often corrective in that we have sinned, but I think at other times it is formative. Formative discipline is discipline that's designed to make us more into what God wants us to be. And we're going to face both of those kinds of discipline in our life. And when we face those things, the danger we're going to have is that we will, in verse 11, reject that discipline or loathe his reproof. Reproof, really the idea behind reproof, is primarily words of warning and correction. So in some ways, it's very similar to the teaching and commandments of of verse 1. It's when God comes along and says, stop doing this. Don't go down this path. Don't loathe that. Don't look at that and say, well, why doesn't God want me to do these kinds of things? Why can't I do this? Because it seems good to me. And the discipline is often, includes punishment. That there are times in which when we do not do what God calls us to do, when we do forget the commandments, when we do fail to keep the teaching, that there are times in which God, in a sense, spanks us so that we won't continue down that path of sin. But we'll come back into the right path that God wants us to have. And what we need to do is to have the proper perspective or attitude towards God's discipline. So we don't reject it. We don't loathe it. But we actually embrace it. And why would we embrace it? Because verse 12, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Now, we often recognize when you become a parent, you you look back maybe at what your parents did and you understand why they'd say things like, I'm doing this because I love you before you discipline your child. And as a child, you often look at that and think, I don't think so. If you loved me, I would think you would not be doing this to me right now. And when we're thinking about our relationship to God, we're the children. And sometimes we look at God and say, I don't think you're loving me. This does not seem like love to me. And yet, God, as a loving father, says, it is though. And if I didn't love you, I would not be doing this. Because if you don't love your son, you don't correct him. If you don't love your son, you don't reprove him. Certainly, that's a reminder for us as parents, why should we discipline? 
Not because we're frustrated. Not because we've had it. Not because we're embarrassed. But because we want what is best for our children. We want to see them honor the Lord and to do what is right. And so our discipline should be motivated by love and concern for them. And God's discipline is always motivated that way. And the fact that he does care enough about us is why he takes the time to discipline and reprove us. C.S. Lewis once gave an illustration related to this, talking about an artist. That if an artist were to, to make a, a picture for a little kid, he might kind of do that pretty quickly. Kind of just throw something together, give it to him and think, here you go. But if they're trying to make a masterpiece, they're going to work over it over and over again. And they might even at times scrape off what they had done in order to make sure that it was just the way it was meant to be. And in a sense, if the painting could speak, the painting might say, why are you treating me this way? And the answer is, because I care more about you than I do the other thing. Lord, why, why am I going through this? The answer is because I love you. I want you to enjoy a peaceful and prosperous life. And if you do not, re- do not hate my reproof, if you do not despise and neglect my discipline, then you can't experience my love. And again, I think it's a, it's a good reminder that Solomon has put verses 11 and 12, right after verse 10. Because as one commentator put it, it's a reminder that there are other divine methods and better prizes than material prosperity. That what we want more than wealth in this life is the love of God. And that's ultimately what we're looking for. That's what it really means to enjoy a peaceful and prosperous life. And how will we get there? If we are wholly committed to God and his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom and instruction. We thank you for your love. And we know that that you call us to do what we do, not because you simply want us to to slavishly follow your arbitrary rules and commands. But because this is a good way, it is a right path, and it is one that is best for us. Lord, help us to long for the, the kind of life you want us to have and to find it through our relationship with you. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.